0: earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and uh, bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, behold, They are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Father God, we thank you just again for another beautiful day that you've blessed us with. God, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and God to read your word publicly for all to hear. And God, I just pray that as we dive into what your word says, God, let it be your word that is spoken. God, I pray that the the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you. And God, I pray that we focus on you here and now, but also as we leave. God, may we be a united front, going out and fulfilling what you command us to do. So God, let us open up our hearts right now to you. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And so let's look at this text real quick. There's, there is a lot of information going on here, but if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, what has happened is God created Adam and Eve. They sinned, they had children, the the world became more and more wicked. And so God said, I regret that I have even made man. And so God chooses Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives. And he says, build an ark and I'm going to save you and start the world all over again through you. And so Noah and his family build the ark. They are in it as the floods come. People had never seen a flood up to that moment. The floods come and cover the entire earth. God started over in this moment with all creation again. And then the floods reside. Noah and his family come out. And in Genesis chapter nine, verse one, God gives them a command and he tells them, be fruitful and fill the earth. Go out and fill the earth. You can have domain over everything, dominion over everything. You can rule it. It is yours. Be fruitful and fill the earth. That is a command from God. And so we see that Noah's three sons, they take this command seriously and they start having children. And Ham has two sons, one named Canaan, one named Cush. And Cush has a son named Nimrod. And Nimrod, it says, is a mighty man before the Lord and a mighty hunter. And so a lot of times when I was reading that, it's like, oh, Nimrod, he was a great guy. Nimrod was a horrible guy. A lot of people actually believe Nimrod was the first tyrant to ever exist. He was a horrible leader and like child sacrifice. And like just when it says hunter for God, it's actually talking about like he strived against God. And so it's like, hey, you're a Nimrod. It's like, that's not a compliment. We say it's a negative thing. And so Nimrod started this city called Babel. And we see here in and not Exodus, Genesis 11, that all of them came together on the plain of Shinar. What was their commandment? Be fruitful and fill the earth." What are they doing? Coming together. They're not filling off the earth, filling out the earth. They are disobeying God, two generations from the flood. And right away, they are going back to, "We're not going to trust God. We're going to do what we want to do. God says, go and fill the earth. Nope. We're going to come and gather together. And not only that, they start building this mighty city. And notice in Genesis eleven four, 4, who they are building the city for. It says that they built the city for themselves. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed. We don't want to be dispersed. If we can become so mighty and so great, God can't disperse us. We can come together. We will be strong. And so God in his infinite wisdom comes down because they are doing everything for their glory. And God says, man, if they keep working together, there's nothing that they won't be able to accomplish. And it's not a good accomplishment that they would be going towards. It's a bad one. They would be going evil and wicked and doing more and more sin. The natural tendency of man is not to do good unless interacted upon. It's like uh, that one law. (laughs) Is it inertia? I don't know my laws right now, but uh, it's that one law that says everything will gradually work its way towards chaos. Like you take a perfectly uh, leveled jar of marbles and they're all in like the same line with the same colors. You shake it up, they're all gonna be dispersed. You shake it up more, it's all gonna get more and more and more messed up. That's the way the world seems to work. That we are not going to be like, hey, today I just feel like being a great person. I mean, yes, good things, bad people do good things, but our natural tendency, the Bible tells us the heart of man devises wickedness. The heart of man leads to death. I mean, that's where our natural tendency is going to take us. And so that's what's happening. They are coming together and trying to do all of this great stuff for themselves, and from this uh, tower of Babel, from this city of Babel, starts spreading out all of these false religions. Nimrod married a woman and they, she, when Nimrod died, she said, hey, actually Nimrod didn't die. He went up to be the son. So we should worship the sun." And then they had a son and she said that when he died, actually he rose 40 days later and she was claiming he is the first Christ, the one that died and rose from the dead and he should be worshiped. And that's where mother earth, she actually is called mother earth now. So whenever you hear people say, Hey, mother earth, they're talking about the wife of Nimrod. It is here that false religions all began. And then you flip all the way to the back of the Bible, to the book of revelation. And you see that there is a great prostitute in revelation coming from Babylon, also known as Babel. And so from this moment, we get all the false religions. We get the great prostitute, the one world church at the end of times that is going to lead everybody astray. And that is what is happening here in our passage, because it's all about pride. It's about themselves, not about the glory of God, but about how they can glorify themselves. And then we see the downfalls of Babel. We see that because of this, God disperses their language. He, he confuses them. And that's where we get all the different languages and the different cultures because they were like, no, we're not gonna spread out. And so God's like, fine, I'm gonna make you. So he changes their languages. Imagine waking up that next morning when somebody else you're used to being able to understand is just speaking in all this babble, this gibberish, this nonsense, and you're like, I have no idea. Go with people you understand. I'm gonna go with people I understand. And they spread out on their own. But we see that the things that led to Babel's downfall were that they directly disobeyed God. God said, go fill the earth. They said, no, we're going to come and segregate or uh, uh, come together. He said, hey, live for my glory. They said, no, we're living for our own glory. They were full of pride. And so we're going to see that in Babel, what we actually see is the, the, the characteristics of a worldly church of a church that is living for their own name. And when I say church, I don't mean center Christian church. I mean each and every single one of you as the individual bodies of Christ, coming together to make the collect individual members of the body of Christ, coming together, that you are not called to live life for yourself. The temptation of the worldly church is that we can make a great name for ourselves. That it's about me. That if I don't get enough recognition, hey, look at me. I'm going to start making a fuss. I'm going to start being noisy enough. Or I'm going to start chewing somebody else out. That I'm going to be a couch coach. That I'm going to sit in the distance seeing other people messing up. And I'm going to yell at them from the comforts of my own life. Instead of actually getting my hands on and involved. The, the, the temptation of the worldly church is to be divided, to care only about how does this impact me? How does this help me out? How can I be more comfortable in that pew or in that setting? And how can I grow my own comfort in my own name, even if I can come and go without even being noticed? That is the temptation of the worldly church. But let's not get it mistaken that the church is supposed to be an extremely powerful thing. That when we come together collectively, there should be a powerful happening going on in here. That there should be a battle being raged against Satan. So that we come together and 59 times the Bible says how we should interact with one another. That we should serve one another, love one another, rebuke one another, exhort one another, encourage one another, pray for one another that we should be there for one another, not be couch coaches to one another, but actually hands-on coming into their life and living life with one another. The church should be an extremely powerful force. It, It is, and it should be the greatest army in the world. I love the image when Elijah is, uh, I think it's Elijah, but whenever Elijah or Elisha is um, surrounded by the enemy and he says, hey, his messenger goes out to use the bathroom or whatever, but he goes out of the tent and he looks up and he sees that they are surrounded by the armies and he comes running back in and he's like, hey, we are surrounded, what are we gonna do? And so then Elijah or Elisha, forgive me please but he says go back out and look again and he prayed may his eyes be open and he looked back out and he said what do you see and he was like there is an army surrounding them a fiery host man we are gonna win And that is how the church should be, that we should realize we are powerful, not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are in the fact that we are found on Jesus Christ. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 16, he was talking to the disciples and he said, Hey, who do you guys say that I am? Matthew 16 verse 13, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say a Elijah and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is how powerful the church should be, that the gates of hell should not even prevail against God's people, God's gathering together, God's men and women. We should be that powerful. But when we start fighting each other, then we weaken ourselves so much. If Satan can get us to come in here and start looking at the flaws and the imperfections of everybody else while thinking we have got it so good, then the church is not going to stand. Jesus told us in Mark chapter 3 verse 25, a house divided cannot stand. Abraham Lincoln quoted that whenever he said a nation divided cannot stand. When you look at our nation, we're pretty divided. It should not be so in the church. When you look at our church, you should not see division. You should not see backbiting. You should not see couch coaching, but instead you should be be seeing people coming together and glorifying God together, despite differences. Just look at the disciples. I mean, you got 12 guys following Jesus and they were not the same people. You had zealots, you had tax collectors, you had fishermen, you had run-of-the-mill, just normal people. But you had people who would have hated each other. And yet they were able to come together under Jesus and be united. We saw times where they were backbiting, where they were attacking one another. When uh, Andrew and John come together and they're like, hey, who's gonna be the greatest? Can we sit at your right hand? And every time Jesus is like, why are you doing this? It's not like Jesus is like, yay for you, but he always rebukes them whenever they do that. We must come together, but Satan is gonna try and separate us. Satan's gonna try and get us to look at everybody else. And so I just have a question for you. When you came in the doors today, and you need to really think about this, but when you came in the doors today, was there anybody, and don't look at them, but was there anybody that you saw and you were like, oh man, I have to see them again. Oh man, I really don't want to have a conversation with them. So I'm going to come this way and sneak through these other doors. Maybe if we show up late enough, we won't have to talk to anybody. And maybe we'll sneak out quick enough so we won't have to see anybody. Was that in your heart at all? That is not glorifying to God. If it is, that is division, which God does not call for us to have. He does not call for us to be a divided church, but instead to be united together. I love the way C.S. Lewis wrote it in his screw tape letters. And I hope you'll just listen to this because it's kind of a long uh, reading, but if you really hear it, it is some powerful stuff. So screw screw tape letters, if you don't know about it, C.S. Lewis wrote it, and it's from the viewpoint of a new demon in training who has been assigned a patient and is trying, it's just kind of the view of how Satan tempts us and his demons tempt us. So it's not scripture, but it is very accurate, I still believe. And so this is letter number two. And Screwtape is writing to his accomplice, uh, Wormwood. And he says, one of our greatest allies at present is the church itself. He says, don't misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in in, in, in eternity. Terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes even our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it's quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished, sham-gothic erection on the new building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy, which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad and in very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like this is the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter, your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune, or have boots that squeak, or double chins, or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. At his present stage, you see, he has an idea of Christians in his mind, which he supposes to be spiritual, but which in fact is largely pictorial. His mind is full of togas and sandals and armor and bare legs and the mere fact that the other people in church wear modern clothes is a real, though of course an unconscious, difficulty to him. Never let it come to the surface. Never let him ask what he expected them to look like. Keep everything hazy in his mind now and you will have all eternity wherein to amuse yourself by producing in him the peculiar kind of clarity which hell affords. I've been writing hitherto on the assumption that the people in the next pew afford no rational ground for disappointment. Of course, if they do, if the patient knows that the woman with the absurd hat is a fanatical bridge player, or the man with squeaky boots, a miser, and an extortioner, then your task is so much easier. All you then have to do is keep out of his mind the question... If I, being what I am, can consider that I am in some sense a Christian, why should the different vices of those people in the next pew prove that their religion is mere hypocrisy and convention? You may ask whether it is possible to keep such an obvious thought from occurring even to a human mind. It is, Wormwood, it is. Handle him properly and it simply won't come into his head. He has not been anything like long enough with the enemy to have any real humility yet. What he says, even on his knees, about his own sinfulness is all parrot talk. At bottom, he still believes he has run up a very favorable credit balance in the enemy's ledger by allowing himself to be converted, and thinks that he is showing great humility and condescension in going to church with these smug, commonplace neighbors at all. Keep him in that state of mind as long as you can. That's the enemy's playbook. Hey, if I can get them looking at other people, if I can get them judging others, if I can get them talking negatively about somebody else, if I can get them to not focus on the real reason they are here and think that it is about them and their comfort and their righteousness and how good they are, then the enemy has won. If we give that foothold when we step in here, let alone it's not just here people, it is when we live as the church, which is what we are called to do every single day of our lives. When we're out talking to other people and how we talk about other Christians and how we downgrade other people based on what they do, forgetting that we ourselves, Paul said it, Christ came to save all sinners of whom I am the very worst. Paul, the Paul who wrote so much of the New Testament says, I am the worst sinner of them all. That's the mindset that we need to have. And Paul even wrote to the church in Corinth who was thinking that they were this great church. Look at us. We're doing so good. We are righteous. And Paul wrote to them and had some very harsh words for them. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, he said, You think you're living according to the Spirit, but actually you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? If there is jealousy and strife among you, and you're thinking, look at us, we are so righteous, we're here on Sunday morning, but your heart is wicked towards another person, you are behaving in the flesh. God wants us to give him our heart. The worldly church should not be divided, the, the, the church should not be divided like this. The worldly church is divided like this. Paul writes to, the, to Titus as Titus is starting up this church, and he tells Titus in Titus 3.9, he says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless, People are wanting to get together and be like, hey, we fasted like six times this week. Hey, we did this. Hey, this is actually what the law really says. Hey, this is like, we need to enact more laws on people. And Paul's like, hey, don't, don't get caught up in that. Because it is about Jesus and Jesus alone. He says that in 1 Corinthians as well. I came to preach Christ and crucified. That is what I came to preach. Not the law, not anything else other than Jesus. And now let's get this clear. Disagreements are going to happen. I mean, you know, we are human. We are going to disagree about certain things. But it's how we react to those disagreements that is important. I mean, look at the world today. I was reading a post from a guy and he posted about abortion is more. more, more, I will get the word out soon. Abortion is murder. And he he was right in that. And then he had another guy say, I disagree with you but I see where you came from. And they had a discussion based on it. That is rare. I mean, especially on social media. It's like you say one thing and it's like, we can't even have a civil conversation. It's name calling. And I wish I were only talking about the world, but I'm talking about Christians as well. Predominantly Christians is who I see doing it. Where we are attacking. Now we stand firm on stances. We stand firm on the importance of saving life at the moment of conception. We stand firm on what God's word is, but we do not just start smacking people over the head with the Bible and not showing them love and grace as well. And so the nation is definitely divided and disagreements are going to come, but it's how we handle those that is gonna set us apart. The way we don't handle those is by saying, we disagree, we're done. We cannot be in union. As long as, you know, like there are some things that uh, Paul says actually flee from that. Like get away, don't don't be involved in those. But when I talk about disagreements, I'm talking about the trivial little stuff that we get so hung up on and separate over. And we know what we're talking about. We're not even talking about God's word 90% of the time. It's they looked at me this way. They didn't dress right for church. They didn't cook this right. They didn't do that right. And it's like, I'm done. I don't even want to deal with them. And God's like, no, be united, stand firm together. One thing that we get disagreed on so much and it's like, I'm done. Forget about that is the method of something. How we do that, be it door to door, be it postcards, be it on a street corner, whatever. We start yelling at each other because they're not doing it the way we want them to do it. We can disagree on methods. What we cannot disagree on is the message. It is around Jesus and him alone. That we can never disagree on. We shouldn't ever disagree on. Jesus only. How we share Jesus That's a different story. We can see disagreements as long as we come together that Jesus is being glorified, I'm gonna humble myself. Your way, let's go with that. You know what? You might have an advantage that I don't have. Let's go that route. The disciples even came up to Jesus one time and they were like, hey Jesus, we have these other guys and they're talking about you, but they're not one of us. Should we go tell them to shut up? And Jesus is like, hey, they are proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. Let them go. It doesn't matter how they do it as long as Jesus and God are glorified. So we can disagree on the methods. We need to be united on the message. And we should never, even when we disagree on the method, be the bigger person. Be the person that says, you know what, I don't think that works, but that is fine. Let's go with that. Let's attempt that. Yeah, we might fail. I'm not gonna throw it back in your face as long as the message and the heart are pure. So that is where we come together because pride is what is going to get in the way. The worldly church is full of pride. This is a consumeristic mindset where it's all about us, all about me. That is the worldly church. But the worldly church is not the church that God called us for. And so I want you to flip over to Acts chapter 2. Starting in verse one. So here we see at the Tower of Babel, God separated the nations and he gave them a different language and he dispersed them. And now today we have another enemy, Satan, not another. God is not an enemy. I said that wrong. But we have an enemy that is trying to separate us. But in Acts chapter two, we have the reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. Because here Jesus, and a notice in Genesis 11, verse 5, it said that God came down and intervened. That's important. That's a foreshadowing to Acts chapter 2. Because in Acts chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So Jesus has come down. He's given his life as the only sacrifice for us to make it to heaven based on him only. And now the day of Pentecost has arrived. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes, here, or, and elamites and residents of mesopotamia judea and cappadocia pontus and asia phrygia and pamphylia egypt and the parts of libya belonging to cyrene visitors from rome jews and proselytes cretans and arabians we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of god so do you see the difference there At the tower of Babel, God came down and said, you need to go and fill the earth. They said, no. So God came down and said, go, I'm going to confuse you. I'm going to bring you out and you're all going to say different things in different languages. And then Jesus, years later, comes down, gives his life to unite everybody again. They gather together different languages, different regions. They're not all speaking the same thing, but yet everybody is hearing the same message. This is what the spiritual and the godly church should be. Different backgrounds, different histories, different lifestyles coming together and being united under the message of Jesus. Being brought together and then being sent out on a mission. Because right before this, Jesus gave them all a command. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 through 20. It's the great commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so they all came together. They heard one Uh, saying in their own tongues, they were united, and then they were sent out. Because right here in Acts chapter 2 is the beginning of the modern church. It's where we now see Paul going on mission trips. We see Peter going on mission trips. We see Barnabas. We see Apollos. We see Timothy. We see the gospel being spread out now all united under the same mission of Jesus Christ. And that mission is found in 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 14. It says, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, This is the mission that you have been entrusted with, the message of reconciliation. But how are you gonna go out and share a message of reconciliation if you are not living a message of reconciliation? Because people are looking. We are called Christians, which means little Christ, which means that when we live, people should see Christ in our lives. So non-believers are going to be looking at you to see who is God really like. I've heard about him, but what is he really like? Paul told the church in Corinthians, uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so we are called to be imitators of God, not divided, not backbiting, not couch coaching, but instead united. The godly church stands united despite the differences that we might have. Galatians 3.28 tells us there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. Instead, we are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I heard it said one time, you have more in common with every other believer in this room than you do with your identical person that is not a Christian. So for example, Me being a Texas Longhorn, Second Amendment advocate, pro-life, you know, standing for Jesus, like wanting to be a rugged man, you know, everything like that. Like me has more in common with somebody who is the complete opposite of me, but yet they have Jesus than I have in common with somebody who is identical to me, but they don't have Jesus. I should long to hang out with the fellow brother and sister in Christ who has nothing in common with me other than Jesus because we have worlds more in common than the person who does not have Jesus, but we have everything else in common. We have more in common with Christians than with unbelieving people. That is what unites us and it should unite us so much deeper than our common interests. The statement is, blood is thicker than water. That is the statement, right? Making sure I say that right. Yeah, blood is thicker than water. And what what we take that to mean is like, hey, my blood relatives, my brother, my mom, my dad, that is a lot closer than like non-blood relatives. But what it really meant is the blood of Jesus, or what it should mean, is that the blood of Jesus brings us so much closer than those who are not with Jesus. I mean, there should be a unity here that is so tight. Yeah, we're going to disagree. I mean, you disagree with your family. Hopefully you don't disavow them. I mean, hopefully you're not just like, we're done. Sadly, it does happen. But the great news is there is grace for even those situations. The great news is Jesus forgives. Jesus died even for that but we are called to stand united. Colossians 3, 8 says, now you must put them all away. Paul is commanding us, put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, put on kindness, put on humility, put on meekness and patience, bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, you don't walk away. You don't flee. You don't break communion, but instead you forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above these all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in deed or word, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We are called to stand in unconditional love for one another and we walk in forgiveness. So, again, if you are out there sharing a message of reconciliation, of forgiveness from God, but yet you don't forgive your neighbor, your friend, your so called brother in Christ, what message are you truly conveying? What kind of message is that to the world but there 's a key thing that all of this requires. We must be humble. A key word for the worldly church is pride a key word for the for the godly church is humility that 's what the godly church needs to be rooted in that 's what we must every day equip ourselves with step into is humility it's not about me today it's not about me it's about jesus and living for his glory in everything i do we die to ourselves daily we follow jesus where he calls philippians 2 verse 3 says do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Then this is the mindset you should have among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in form of... Excuse me. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We are to have that mindset among us a mindset of humility found in Christ. And then in everything, we live for Christ. We put on humility and we say, all right, God, it's not about me, but it's about you. And how can you be glorified in my ups and my downs and my agreements and my disagreements? God, how can I walk in forgiveness today? God, how can I get the opportunity? This is what I tell couples that are going to get married as I find out they're going to get married. And it's like, man, the one thing that you get to do now is you get to walk in forgiveness every single day. You get to demonstrate the gospel of Jesus to your spouse every single day because there's going to be friction but you get to display forgiveness. That is what we are called to do, to live for Christ. He died so that we could be united, not divided. I grew up in Coffeeville. We had 70 churches in that town. And I used to think like, yes, 70 churches, we are such a godly town. And then I got to thinking about it recently and it's like 70 churches, that is 70 times that God's people said, we can't live with you, we can't do communion with you, we can't be in relationship with you, we're gonna spread out. We're gonna divide ourselves more and more. A house divided cannot stand. And I believe it breaks God's heart when his people say, I'm done with one of my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm done with you because of what you did. I can't forgive you. Whereas God's command is forgive as I have forgiven you, which is unconditional forgiveness. And so we're going to close a little different this morning. I mean, we're going to not really close with an invitation, but I want you to know that if, you, if God is working on your heart, find somebody. I mean, my phone number is on the front of the bulletin. Kurt's number, Sam's number, the elder's number. There are so many godly men and women in this room that would love to talk to you. So if you are desiring to walk with Christ, find somebody. Don't hesitate on that. But we're not going to do the formal coming forward at the end of the service. That's not how we're going to end today. But instead, I want to close with a challenge. Stand firm together. Stand united. This is your challenge. Where if there was somebody, when I said, when you entered this building and you saw that person, and you said, I'm going to go through these doors, give that over to Christ. Repent of that heart say, God, give me a new heart. Take my pride, take my arrogance, take my bitterness. And God, give me your humility. Give me your forgiveness so that I can be united with that person. Because Paul tells us in Ephesians 26, he says that it's okay to be angry, but he says, do not sin in your anger. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Why? Because he says it gives an opportunity to the devil. And so he says, do not let the sun go down in your anger and therefore giving no opportunity for the devil. So if you're in here and there's bitterness towards a fellow brother or sister, there's a a, a friction or there's division, you're not doing that for Christ. Instead, you are giving a foothold for the devil. And So I challenge you to take care of that, to find them and be like, hey, we got to hash this out because there's something between us and I I just can't let it go. I've tried forgiving you. I can't forgive you right now. Let's talk about this because I want to forgive you. I want to be good with you. I want to be united with you. And so as we pray and as we sing, do some time to do some inward reflection of is there division? Am I being an agent for the devil, which is what division really would be based on those things? Am I being an agent for the devil or instead am I standing firm and going to fight for unity among God's people? Because the world is full of division. The church should be full of a united people standing under the message of Jesus Christ. And that message is one of reconciliation. Father God, you are good and God, you came so that we could be united together. God, not not divided, not angry with one another, not bitter with one another, but God, united. And so God, I just pray for the hearts of your people here and now. God, I pray for those who aren't living for you. Um, If they need a relationship with you, God, work in their hearts the way that you can. But God, I pray specifically for your church, that we come together, that we be strong under the message of Jesus, that we walk in forgiveness, that we look for ways that we can live for one another and serve one another. And God, just be your people to one another not full of hatred and bitterness, but love and compassion and forgiveness. God, if there be any division here, give us the humility to deal with it. Help us own up what we can and then go and seek out reconciliation so that we can be a strong church for you. One that lives according to your word in everything, even when it's uncomfortable. God, we need you to work in our lives and I pray that here and now and it's in the name of Jesus.